Panasoria is recorded in front of a live studio audience. All right, we're, we're rolling. I'm not going to go full ASMR for this <laughs> episode. <laughs> just just at the beginning. But anyway, hello. Welcome back to Panastoria. And uh, I'm Jonah. I'm Lindsay. And we are your hosts. As per usual. As per usual through this journey, <coughs> journey along with us through history. But anyway, so today's episode is a lot different from what we've been doing lately because it's actually intentionally hilarious we actually haven't it's also kind of different from what we normally do also in general like it's not it's it's not it's a little more fluid it's not really a chronological event or thing so no we're uh here to talk to you about so i'm calling it a history of canadian comedy i'm not going to call it the history no (laughs) we kind of picked and choosed who we wanted to talk about not gonna lie but we decided that you know Canadian comedians have become famous in the United, you know, in, in general, outside the of world, Canada. In as the well. world, yeah. As I mean, we know it, yeah. Shit's Creek just won an you know epic number of Emmys. Yeah. So, did they break a record yeah. for the number one? Yeah. 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 They did. They smashed it. You know whose line is anyway has been on TV for like thirty years. Yeah, and they have two of the regulars on there are Canadian because I just found out Ryan Styles has Canadian citizenship. Yeah, I knew so. That. Yay. And Ryan Styles. I love Colin, but Ryan is still my favorite. Colin's mine, but together they're great. They're together <laughs> they work as one unit. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. So and I mean Steve Martin is and, and Eugene Levy, I mean before Shits Creek, have had successful film careers, so just the weather <laughs> has changed, it's snowing. My sinuses don't like it. It's been quite a day. That's yeah. all I'm gonna say. That also But it, it did start snowing today, so there's that. Just before we start, I want to dedicate this particular episode in the memory of Kathy McDonald and Aaron Locke. Both of them were, one of them was, I've known since I was a young kid. She, my mom worked with her and she unfortunately passed away re, uh, uh, about a month ago. And my friend Aaron Locke uh, unfortunately lost her battle and she was really excited that we were doing this episode because she was a particular fan of a certain Canadian television show we will talk about later. But this is for you. And uh, this is, of course, for all of, all of you guys. We hope we can give you some bit of a laugh and ourselves a bit of a laugh. We were we were watching a little some clips of some skits from the shows we were talking about, just howling. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway... <laughs> Turns uh, out there's actually a lot more content on YouTube than I thought there was for some of this stuff. <laughs> and we're pretty stoked Including about the that. epic clip you will hear to close out this yeah. episode. <laughs> that brought me and Jonah a lot of joy this evening. Oh, yes. And, <laughs> and we hope it brings it to you. We really hope. The Canadian viewers hopefully will understand. American viewers, we're sorry. May <laughs> also be an age thing, too. Yep, definitely. <laughs> but uh, any guess we can just... You get to just start? Yeah. So, Christine Cook, I did take your advice if you're listening to this. We are starting very, 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 very early on because Canadian comedy has a long history even before Canada was a country. So the earliest examples I could find of Canadian humor date back to 1821 to 1823. It was when the Halifax newspaper Acadian Recorder published a series of satirical articles called Letters of Mephibosheth Stepshire. I don't know. 
The articles are described as, quote, quiet, observant, deeply conservative in a human sense. They were so they were conservative aimed political cartoons. And if you know Canada, Canada has a pretty good system of political a very cartoons. long and rich history. Yeah. One of my profs actually said it's almost an unwritten rule that Canadian politicians need to look at least a little bit funny just so it's easier for them to be drawn. <laughs> and I've always that's always stuck with me because it's it's so true. Folk humor and satire dominated the comedy scene, especially in French Canada. Yeah, French Canada has a very deep root for the comedy scene, as you'll see later in this episode. Napoleon Aubin published a series of journals between 1837 and 1845 called Le Fantastique and Le Castor. These proses satirized public life in Quebec, particularly the Catholic Church, who at that time ends for quite into the 20th century, still had quite a bit of influence on Quebec political and social life. As the 19th century came to a close, the humor in Quebec began taking aim towards the provincial bourgeoisie and ridiculed Parisian manners. English Canadian humor began to form its own tradition by the 1910s. Author Stephen Leacock is considered a pioneer of English Canadian humor with his sunshine, sunshine sketches of a little town and Arcadian adventures with Idle Rich. Both were known for their dry wit style with incorporations of tragic irony and satire in the life of small town Canada, which, <laughs> Lindsay, you've lived in a small town. You, you know how, you know how, crazy and silly you can get oh i sure do <laughs> leacock's legacy is memorialized in the stephen leacock memorial medal for humor awarded to humorous literature in canada annually vaudeville and stage shows were also a big influence not just on canadian comedy but actually comedy in general because vaudeville and theater really brought it to a wider audience in a sense Going back to Napoleon Aubin, he adapted Le Fantastique and Le Castor into his theater troupe because that he had a, he happened to be a part of a theater troupe which were called Les Amateurs or the Amateurs. <laughs> Les Amateurs Typographiques. However, he was imprisoned in 1839 for his personal views, particularly his views on the Catholic Church. Um, he also dabbled in the idea of American annexation of Quebec. <laughs> which is a joke in and of itself mm -hmm. not Quebec but the idea of annexation yeah. <laughs> vaudeville theaters in Canada were first operated in Montreal because honestly vaudeville is a very like to me it definitely has a lot more roots in French culture than English culture mm -hmm. and we definitely like the English vaudeville definitely came over from France yeah. because like in the 30s, there were vaudeville, like the cabarets started from vaudeville shows and shit like that. And for those of you who don't know vaudeville, vaudeville is not, is like, um, it is like a, very much like a cabaret where it's just different acts. Yeah. So there's, it's not just comedy, but comedy was a big part of it. Yeah. It's, it's worth, like a mix of comedy and drama and. Yeah. Yeah. Magicians. Yeah. Stuff like that. And uh, it's actually where stand-up comedy started was at these vaudeville shows. Yeah, like monologues and stuff. Yeah. 
So they first operated in Montreal with Théâtre Royal on Côte Street, or Côté Street. Became particularly well-known, not just in Canada, but North America. With performers from the New York stages even coming up to perform there because of the audience that would be gathered. One of the acts was an absurdist comedy called Scenes in a Bowery Restaurant. I managed to find a bit like of, a, of, an, of an idea of what it is. And it definitely does not translate well to today. That's the problem with like a lot of these things that I mentioned is the humor does not translate well in modern, not just like, not just from French to English, but from <laughs> 19th century to 21st century. Yeah. But by far, probably the most, the, the, uh, the man who is credited with bringing Canadian humor to a world audience was a man named Max Sennett. He was born in Richmond, Quebec, and he became inspired to take up theater after seeing a vaudeville show in Northampton, Massachusetts. He studied acting, clowning, singing, dancing, set design, and directing. He became known for his humorous portrayal of Sherlock Holmes in a series of parodies of the titular stories between 1911 and 1913 on the New York stage. With the help of the Board of New York Motion Picture Company, Senate founded Keystone Studios in Endale, California in 1912. The company saw many famous performers get their start their films start here, including Harold Lloyd, Bing Crosby, Rose, Roscoe Arbuckle, and lo and behold, Charles Chaplin. So Canadian gave Charlie Chaplin his start, yep. which is cool. amazing. <laughs> Senate gained the nickname the King of Hollywood's Fun Factory for his development of slapstick comedy. So he was kind of the, I don't want to say he was the founder he wasn't the founder of slapstick comedy but he really made it popular amongst the masses kind of deal yeah he also developed a comedy style where the humor is actually instead of being based on performer the performer's characteristics or the character's personality traits mm -hmm. but it was more based on humorous situations instead so people ending up in these weird absurd kind of situations that's what the comedy was based on yeah by age 55, he had directed over 1,000 silent films and over a dozen, quote-unquote, talkies, <laughs> as they were called, during his career. And at that point, he actually went into semi-retirement, and the Keystone Company was purchased by Mascot Pictures. In 1938, Senate was given an honorary Oscar out of the recognition for his, quote, contribution to the comedy technique of the screen, the basic principles of which are as important today as when they were first put into practice. And I argue that it's still important today because he basically started, he basically popularized com comedic films. Mm -hmm. uh, it continued on by saying, call, naming Senate as the master of fun, discoverer of stars, sympathetic, kindly, understanding comedy genius which he absolutely was yes. guaranteed name name a movie from around like the 1910s and whatnot there that's a comedy guaranteed he probably directed that movie or produced it prolific is one way to describe him. very much yeah keystone was eventually closed in 1935 following senate's departure and the studio's bankruptcy senate passed away peacefully on november 5th 1960 at age 80 and unfortunately does not get the <clears throat> as much recognition today as he definitely deserves yeah because this man did a lot 
a couple Canadians that definitely get the recognition that they deserve even today. John Lewis Wayne and Frank Schuster, which I have to say, I had no idea that they were Canadian. <laughs> and yeah. I feel so ashamed about that. Same. And it's funny because they actually influenced like one of our collective favorite shows, but I try to talk about later. Yeah. And so many others. Oh, sure. yeah, for sure. I'm pretty sure that these guys influenced a certain woman I'm going to be mentioning later on. The, the, both were Toronto-born comedians, or at least in the what's now the GTA. Mm-hmm. Their partnership began when they met at... Harvard Collegiate, and the two realized how well they worked together on both just generally and on a theatrical scale, Mm -hmm. and began performing at the annual reviews the school would put on, and they were hit. They both eventually kind of parted ways and started taking, they started studying for their MAs. When the Second World War broke out and both actually enlisted in the infantry, it was during their army career that the two reunited and began writing together again. And this is awesome about the Canadian Army because even the Canadian Army acknowledged that they were super talented in in comedy. And they were both assigned to the Canadian Army radio show because Mm. this is Second World War (laughs) Canada. Out of Montreal. There they developed and produced what was what would become known as the Army Show, with both men writing the music, lyrics, and sketches. The show put on a funny take on the Army life and was meant to bring a laugh to both military personnel and their families back home. The Army Show eventually ran on CBC Radio between December 13, 1942 and September 5, 1943, and the show was a massive hit to listeners. And a touring, it was so popular that they created a touring show as a war bond drive across Canada. And what's really important is around this time, this is Rainey Schuster became the first two comedians to become nationally renowned Canadian comedians. They even performed at the Anglo-American War Conference held between August 10th and 24th, 1943 in Quebec City. So I'm pretty sure FDR was an audience member for these guys, which is pretty awesome. That's awesome. The duo eventually performed overseas starting on December 21st, 1943, as part of the Canadian Auxiliary Service Entertainment Unit, which, God, I wish that there was such a unit still. Me too. I'd join that unit. (laughs) Life would be better. Performing for troops throughout England and after D-Day to mainland Europe. The duo actually performed at the front lines in the Netherlands, Belgium, France, and Germany. So credit to them for actually, you know, performing in a combat zone. They were known to be interrupted by sniper fire, aircraft strafing, and on one occasion were close to being hit by a V-1 buzz bomb. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever heard the sound of a buzz bomb that it makes, but it is pretty terrifying. And it stops buzzing right before it hits the ground. Yeah, it's like... Yeah. On a side note, one of the performers in the show was Lois Maxwell, who went on to play Miss Moneypenny in the first 14 James Bond films. I love Moneypenny so much. From Dr. No in 1962 to A View to a Kill in 1985. So that's pretty boss. Moneypenny is the best. Yeah, especially Lois Maxwell's Mm -hmm. Moneypenny. Agreed. I do like the the newest Moneypenny. Oh, she's great too, but again, Lois Maxwell. OG. Interesting enough, Lois Maxwell's Canadian as well. Hmm. So, following VE Day, the Army show continued to perform for troops awaiting repatriation to Canada or who remained as occupational forces. 
The show continued to perform until Wayne and Schuster were demobilized in 1947. After returning to Canada, the duo developed the RCA Victor Show for CBC Radio. It was at this point the duo became known professionally as Wayne and Schuster, as the executives said Schuster and Wayne did not sound as great. And what's interesting is to them, they were like, well, we honestly, the name doesn't matter to us. So, okay, if Wayne Schuster is what you want, Wayne and Schuster is what you get. So that's how they they did it. A lot of comedians change their names. Pretty much, yeah. Like, they just didn't care who was first billed, I guess. It's like, well, it's both our show anyway, so... The program later became simply titled The Wayne and Schuster Show and saw 3 million listeners by 1950. This is listeners on the radio. Furthermore, their popularity in the U.S. actually began to cement as the radio broadcasts were aired in the United States for probably the first time. Mm. They They first appeared on television the same year, albeit not in Canada, because the country had no network at the time. Of course. The duo appeared as regulars on Jack Lemmon's Tony Twin Time in an attempt to help boost ratings because it was not, it was Jack, I know Jack Lemmon is really well known today, yeah. but this was his first like real gig and mm-hmm. he was uh, clearly anxious, like nervous about it and it was showing in his yeah. presenting style and not. Following their second performance, it was requested by studio executives the duo take over Jack Lemmon's positions as hosts. However, Wayne and Schuster declined as they were unfamiliar with the medium of television and frankly uncomfortable with it. Fair enough. Probably actually a bit of a smart move, honestly. Yeah, I mean, if if your content is best suited to one format and you're just not confident that it'll translate, why make that jump and risk your reputation? Yeah, and also going to a sh- it's like, well, you guys already know so much about television and we know nothing. Yeah, it's just, because you're already at a disadvantage. Yeah, and this leads me to my next point to our my next bit is in 1952 the newly established cbc television gave the comedians an opportunity to enter the tv world and the reason why they decided to go with it is because one of the producers says this is a new me like basically i'm butchering this but he's basically said this is a brand new medium we are learning about it so we'll learn this together and yeah. wayne and schuster are like fair enough yeah. and so they went for it and also there's probably something to be said for the fact that it's like a public network yeah definitely so for two years, producer Maver Moore and the duo developed some skits to perform for CBC television. It was more kind of like, I don't want to say filler, but whatever's like the in, the in-between slots kind of deal. TV yeah. worked very weird back in the day. Yeah. Um, there's Shakespearean spoof, Rinse the Blood Off My Toga has still, is still a particularly, that's the one main one that I kept finding references to. <laughs> And they it was first performed in 1955 on both CBC and BBC because they were a big hit back in England. Yeah. In 1958, Wayne and Schuster signed a one-year contract with the Ed Sullivan Show with free range to develop their own skits and assurance Sullivan would neither cut nor edit their performances in any way, shape, or form. Nice. Which is huge. Yeah. This is Ed fucking Sullivan. He'll cut anything for. Yeah, but they but they had a full-on hands-off approach good for them really yeah honestly i think wayne and schuster are better than ed sullivan anyway Agreed. Yeah. So. wayne and schuster's partnership lasted up until 1990 when wayne passed away schuster passed away in 2002 before that their popularity continued despite critics calling their style quote out of date which maybe but i still think it's a lot better than comedy 
a lot of comedy today. Totally. And they actually saw a resurgence with young younger viewers in the 1980s because the CBC created 80 half-hour specials of their performances together for worldwide syndication, and it revamped their popularity, yeah. which is must be amazing. So yeah, they it ran through syndication for quite a while. The last company I'm gonna or group of people I'm gonna talk about it's rather weird because I used to be a member. Uh, like I, I used to be an like a bottom member of this company. It's Loose Moose Theater Company. Originally from Britain, the theater director Keith Johnstone eventually resettled in Calgary in the 1970s after accepting a teaching position at the University of Calgary. Johnstone had a particular fondness of improvisational theater, and in 1977 founded Loose Moose Theater with Mel Token, and or Tonkin, I believe. I, th I think it's Tonkin. Yeah. I apologize, sir. But he, uh, Loose Moose Theater, I don't know if it was located there at first, but Cross Iron Mills, not Cross Iron Mills. I'm Crossroads. Crossroads Market, which is, a, for people who don't know, is a farmer's market. There's a theater on the top floor. That's where Loose Moose Theater is. And the reason why I feel that I need to talk about this is not just because I was a member, but because they basically created improv theater mm -hmm. as we know they like all of like the stuff keith johnstone created mm -hmm. is now done all over the world and is world renowned loose moose theater is actually quite well both calgary and edmonton actually have really good comedy scenes yeah i mean the edmonton has one of the best comedy in the fringe festival mm -hmm. so, but hands down one of the best comedy festivals in the world mm -hmm. i will fight people to the death over that mm -hmm. but johnstone developed some new improv comedy styles so first one that I'm going to briefly talk about, it's called Guerrilla Theater. And in this one, performers each take a turn at directing others in an improvised scene. Following the performance, the audience decides if the director did a good job or a bad job for either an award, if they did a good job, uh, which is usually in the form of a banana. <laughs> and if they did a bad job, they are punished with what's known as a forfeit. <laughs> I can't remember what sort of punishments I saw it was nothing really no bad uh but uh it, it, and it was ridiculous I, just as silly the other one and my favorite to perform in was called maestro and performers are competing against each other the performers are chosen at random to do scenes usually based on a theme or word from the audience Performers are then given points by the audience and at the end of the round the performers with the least number of points are eliminated this continues until two players are left and a sudden death game is done. The winner is awarded, quote unquote, a framed $5 bill. <laughs> they don't get to keep the $5 bill. We never did. No. It's, it was just a joke. But that was my favorite show to do. And then the most famous of his creations is called Theater Sports. And it was developed by Johnstone, where, and it was two teams of improvisers compete by performing a series of scenes, after which the scenes are scored by the audience themselves. This form of improv is now done worldwide, and there's even an international tournament of theater sports, mm -hmm. where it's like a big prize money. I've, like, yeah, this started, theater sports was first, was, was done, like, first, like, created and accepted here in Calgary which not a lot of people know, but I did have a lot of fun performing with them. We had a bit of a falling out with the 
with our teachers, but I have nothing against the theater at all. They still produce the the some of the greatest improv in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few of the uh, kids in the hall studied there originally. <coughs> well, one of them's from Calgary. Yeah. But they studied, they got their comedy start at Loose Moose Theater, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. So anyway, that's, uh, that's the beginnings. I feel like the comedy world's a small one, ultimately. It is, unfortunately. But, you know. Some popular radio shows, because, of course, the Canadian Broadcasting Com- Corporation, the CBC, as Jonah mentioned, had started up, and they were beginning to obviously gain steam and take on programs. So one of the more popular, well, one of the most popular ones they've ever had was called The Happy Gang. And it was a radio lunchtime variety show that ran from 1937 to 1959. It existed during the golden age of radio and well into the 50s. It was Canada's most popular, one of Canada's most popular programs. In its prime, it had about 2 million listeners a day, which is insane. (laughs) In... Well, to be fair, it was the Depression, I guess, uh, for a <laughs> while. It's still crazy. In 1937, CBC Regional Program Director George Taggart was given the assignment to come up with a Monday through Friday half-hour variety program that would fill the period from 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The show had a tight budget, which only allowed for four musicians. So, you know, not a lot. <laughs> to lead the band was MC, and act as MC, sorry, was Bert Pearl, whose real name was Bert Shapira. Like we mentioned, the Canadian comedians like to change their names. Not Canadians. Oh, my God. Ah, my mouth isn't working. This is going to be catastrophic. <laughs> or comedic. Yeah. So anyways, Bert was credit- credited with coming up with this concept that became the Happy Gang. And his on-air personality was described as that slap happy chappy, the Happy Gang's own pappy. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. Cringy. Uh, it was a different time. Yeah. Anyway, his fellow musicians were trumpeter Robert Farnon, or Bob Farnon. A violinist Blaine Maffei, or Maffei, and organist Kathleen K. Stokes. Uh, Stokes was already a popular entertainer. Uh, she had been a staff organist at CFRB in Toronto and was also well-known in vaudeville. And on air, she was known as Canada's sweetheart of the theater organ. So she already had, she actually brought some kind of clout to the show. She had a lot of, not a lot of following, but some a decent following before that. Uh, she was the only female member of the Happy Gang, and she re- remained with them throughout their 22 years on the air. The show's theme song referenced the fact that she was the only female cast member by singing It's the Happy Gang with the Boys and Kay Stokes. We hope you like our music and our jokes. Herb May became the show's first regular announcer, and George Temple was appointed the Happy Gang's first producer. And he remained a producer for the show until 1955. The show was originally broadcast at 11.30am and was later moved to 1pm. Singer accordionist Eddie Allen joined the show in 1938 and stayed with the gang for the remainder of their history, along with uh, Mate and Stokes. Excuse me. After Burt Pearl's departure in 1955, Allen became the MC. The show had an iconic opening, which became a catchphrase for Canadian listeners. First, there's the sound of someone knocking at the door, which was really a violinist just knocking on his violin. And then a voice would ask, who's there? And the response was, it's the happy gang. And the reply was, well, come on in. Who's there? It's the happy gang. Come on in. Super corny. <laughs> so corny. I love it though. Yep. So by the time of the World War II, millions of Canadians regarded the Happy Gang as their friends. 
The show was corny and wholesome, and during difficult times of the Depression and the following war, the music and the jokes provided some much-needed cheer. So while we laugh because it's so freaking kid, like cringy and kid, like corny, it probably was like a needed cleanse during oh, yeah. very difficult times. The gang performed There Will Always Be in England nearly every day, giving hope to the listeners when the war effort seemed to be going badly. Songs of faith, like the Lord's Prayer, inspired, inspired and comforted listeners whose sons were fighting overseas. The members also made personal appearances and participated in benefit concerts to support the war effort. Canadian ships at sea played phonograph records by the Happy Gang during the war, and members of the gang also received a number of awards from the government for their work in morale and things like that. Fundraising. In addition to this, the trumpeter Robert Farnon joined the Canadian Army, and he became the conductor of the Allied, Allied Expeditionary Forces Canadian Band. He took the band to England and ended up staying there, actually. for the... He didn't come back. <laughs> <laughs> um, he ended up playing patriotic... He played patriotic songs for the BBC, and he just found success as a composer. In Because they were all quite talented musicians outside of this. So, In 1950, June Colwood wrote a profile of the Happy Gang for Maclean's magazine, which revealed, however, that all was not so happy amongst the Happy Gang off the air. The article described members not getting along and that it was, quote, Possible that one half of the gang would cheer happily if the other half was fired, and that the host, Bert Pearl, well respected by his crew, was frustrated and, ha- and unhappy with his role. According to an anonymous CBC producer, it was, quote, killing him, Pearl, to slosh around with that always smiling routine. Regardless of the disharmony behind the scenes, though, the program continued on and was successful with an estimated audience of 2.5 million that year. In 1955, Bert Pearl suddenly left the Happy Gang, which was still very popular. Although its audience was definitely aging, there was definitely no explanation for his departure. So rumors as a result began to swirl because he was kind of a celebrity. Mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, rumors swirled that he had become seriously ill or possibly had a drinking problem. You know, yeah, could be either. Um, neither turned out to be true, though. Uh, years later, he explained that the pressure of constantly performing with little time off for 18 years led to burnout and a nervous breakdown. Obviously. He moved to California, where he became the music coordinator for Jimmy Durante's NBC TV program, as well as occasionally writing songs for Durante's guest vocalists. So, he moved to California and lived his best life. <laughs> the Happy Gang was cancelled in 1959, but most some of its members continued to perform. Farnon remained in England as a composer and conductor. Bobby Gimby had some success in Canada as a band leader and songwriter, and Blaine Mathay, or Mathay, sorry, became a member of the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. The troupe reunited in 1975 at the Canadian National Exhibition. A record 20,000 fans attended their performance. Burt Pearl even returned, and Kay Stokes was 81 at the time, and they received multiple standing ovations. Before the performance, the gang had expressed some concern that so many years later they they would have been forgotten, but the positive reaction they received obviously showed otherwise. Moving on to another very popular radio show. Uh, In 1946, Max Ferguson was hired at radio station CFPL in London, Ontario. But later that year, he relocated to Halifax, Nova Scotia for the opportunity to join the CBC as a staff announcer with the local CBC Halifax radio building. He was appalled to learn that one of his assignments was the task of hosting a cowboy music show called After Breakfast Breakdown. (laughs) (laughs) To protect his anonymity, and in hopes of quick reassignment, he improvised the character of Old Rawhide, assuming the voice of an elderly ranch hand and giving colorfully disdainful appraisals of the songs he listened, he introduced. The character provided a breath of fresh air to listeners of the state national broadcaster, and they relayed their approval with a ton of fan mail. Ferguson accepted his fate and devised an entire repertoire of raucous and bizarre characters to interact with Rawhide, all of whom were voiced by Ferguson to amuse himself and the audience. 
He created daily skits which parodied literary classics, satirized current events, and CBC personalities. Some recurring characters, and other than Rawhide, obviously, included the pompous CBC announcer Marvin Melibel, the Goomber Brothers, Little Harold, the Black Widow Spider, and the adventurous Granny. In 1949, the show's popularity led to CBC to transfer Ferguson to its head office in Toronto, where he would broadcast nationally. Rawhide's first national broadcast, though, caused a controversy when a member of Parliament rose to to denounce the show for its low humor and abuse of the English language. Despite that, the show remained one of the most popular shows on air, lasting some 17 years. So, clearly nobody cared what that member said. (laughs) (laughs) Or thought. Along the way, the cowboy music was dropped in favor of esoteric folk music, making Ferguson somewhat of a pioneer in the world music genre long before the term existed. He was also able to originate his broadcasts from his beloved Maritimes. For a few years in the mid-50s and between 1955 and 1960, Ferguson recorded three albums, each a part of the Rawhide satirical series. In 1962, he announced he was retiring Rawhide and all of the associated characters that Rawhide had, and kept to his word by never incorporating any of these characters in his future radio ventures, and there were many radio ventures. (laughs) In Rawhide's place, he launched the Five Days a Week Max Ferguson show, beginning in 1962, featuring ethnic music and topical skits based on the news of the day, with the latter highlighting Ferguson's uncanny ability to imitate prominent politicians and celebrities. Ferguson wrote his own topical sketches based on the morning's news and performed all the voices live to air, which is really impressive. The Daily Max Ferguson show wrapped up on June 25th, 1971, after a nine and a half or yeah, nine and a half year run. Ferguson's final sketch featured John Diefenbaker, Pierre Trudeau, and Robert Sandfield, all voiced by him, expressing relief that they would no longer be on the show. <laughs> <laughs> after some time, he returned to the CBC airwaves and appeared on Saturday mornings. For this version of the Max Ferguson show, which would run for over 25 years, Ferguson dropped the skits and relied exclusively on his outspoken charm and facility with the English language, as well as his unique selection of offbeat music and comedy tracks. So, Ferguson retired, finally, from broadcasting in 1998, having spent over five decades at the CBC. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, So, on to my personal favorite of the bunch <laughs> here uh, which i actually to be fair did not realize started as a radio show so. yeah they've been around for a long time <laughs> today i learned the royal canadian air force started in 1970 in montreal as an improv theater re- review called the just society which was a play on prime minister pierre trudeau's famous goal making goal of making canada a just society <laughs> yeah the just society the original cast was John Morgan, Martin Bronstein, Patrick Conlon, Gay Clayton, and Roger Abbott. The troupe moved to Toronto, where it had a long-term residency at the Port Alex Theatre. Steve Winston-Smith was briefly a member, replacing Patrick Conlon, for who declined to move to Toronto, and then Don Ferguson joined when Winston-Smith left as well. The show was fa- favorably reviewed by local critics and attracted the attention of CBC Radio, which commissioned the troupe to perform sketches on a weekly variety show, The Entertainers. The sketches were taped at a CBC studio with a, without a live radio audience. Or a live audience, sorry. <laughs> live radio audience. <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of like what we're doing right now. <laughs> yeah. uh, after a number of personnel changes, the group finally became the Royal Canadian Air Force that we know and love in 1973 when they were given their own show, taped in front of a live audience at the Curtain Club in Richmond Hill, Ontario. CBC gives the original air date of the first broadcast as December 9th, 1973, by this time, the lineup consisted of Roger Abbott, Luba Goy, 
John Morgan, Dave Broadfoot, and Martin Bronstein, and Don Ferguson was a writer on the show, although he would also appear in the sketches too sometimes. Uh, they very quickly became one of the network's most popular programs. Most of their show, or later shows, were based in Toronto and recorded in CBC's Cabbage Town Studios. But as the group became more popular, they frequently traveled throughout the country to record their weekly broadcasts, or weekly radio broadcasts, which featured a mix of political and cultural satire, heavily influenced by the aforementioned Wayne and Schuster. Their touring show also included one or more sketches satirizing local culture and politics, which were not aired on the national broadcast. Bronstein ceased performing with the troupe in 1974 to pursue a full-time journalism career, but continued to write for the Air Force, or Air Force, sorry, until the 1970s. Ferguson, who had become a writer on the show in the first season, swapped places with Bronstein, becoming a writer-performer. In 1977, non-performing writers Gord Hotham, or Holtham, and Rick Olson joined the crew. In the late 70s, during a trip to Los Angeles, Abbott and Ferguson were offered writing jobs for the new television sitcom Taxi, but they opted to remain with the Air Force instead. Recurring characters included the addle-brained hockey player Big Bobby Clobber, Sergeant Renfrew of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and socialite Amy Dillapampa, along with political figures such as Brian Mulroney, Joe Clark, and Pierre Trudeau. Additional characters included Professor Hieronymus Wombat of the National Research Council and funeral director Hector Bagley. Another recurring character making vacant-minded political comments was the Honorable David J. Broadfoot, Member of Parliament for Kicking Horse Pass and leader of the new apathetic party. Broadfoot had been performing this character for years and had appeared on Canadian and American television as the Honorable Member as early as the 1950s, long before his Air Force tenure. In 1977, Broadfoot, Abbott, and Ferguson and Morgan adapted several of their radio sketches for TV in addition to writing some new material. The sketches were aired as the first two episodes of the six-part series Crazy House, which was a collection of sketch comedy pieces from various Canadian writers and performers that aired in January and February of 1977. Broadfoot was the only Air Force cast member to appear on camera in these two episodes. The fifth episode of Crazy House was written entirely by Morgan and consisted of more Air Force members including Lou Bagoy, Billy, Billy Van, Harvey Atkin, and a num couple of others. The first troupe recorded a one-hour television special in 1980, which evolved into a 10-week series and two sequel specials, in addition to their regular radio series. The shows were performed in front of a live studio audience, mixing fully produced sketches with some sketches that were essentially staged versions of the radio show, which featured cast members standing around a microphone reading from scripts rather than acting. That didn't really work aesthetically, obviously. People don't really want to watch you just sit there and, or stand there and talk into a microphone from a script, so they eventually faded from the CBC television from about around 1983. In 1984, though, the troupe's live Toronto stage show was videotaped as a pay TV special and aired on T Ontario's global television network. They continued on the radio, though, and continued to flourish for another decade. The first decade of the show was largely recorded before a live audience in Cabbage Town, and from 1984 to 1992, it was recorded for broadcast on the road in communities across Canada. They performed a non-broadcast concert and theatrical performances across North America. In 1992, Air Force took another shot at television with 1992, Year of the Farce, which was a satirical New Year's Eve special. And these New Year's Eve specials are of particular sentimental value to me. I watched a lot of them, like, every year. It was always just tradition to watch with my parents. But Chicken Cannon has always been my favorite. I'm probably going to post a video of, I found a compilation on YouTube of every single chicken cannon, so 
definitely going to be posting that for you. The troupe elected to perform all of their sketches in a more traditional TV style, so acting, rather than, rather than performing them in front of a radio microphone like they had done in the past before. The special was a hit and led to the troupe producing another weekly television series, which debuted in 1993. However, this time the move to TV was permanent, and the radio show continued alongside TV until May 1997, which is quite impressive, actually. The practice of a New Year's Eve special continued until the end of the program, and those episodes were typically titled Year of the Farce. In more recent years, Air Farce has also honored, had the honor sorry, of counting down the seconds before the, new, before the New Year on CBC. So, it's always a goal to watch the... Well, <laughs> when we watched, or when we had New Year's Eve, like, because this was, like, near, in Toronto, or, like, in Ontario, in Eastern Time, it was, like, 10 p.m. here. So my parents would always be like, sweet, we made it to the end of Air Farce, time to go to bed. <laughs> the weekly show ran until 2008-2009, and over the years, they were there were a number of recurring characters, including Mike from Canmore, played by Morgan. <laughs> I'll put in a clip of him saying it. I'm Mike from Canmore. <laughs> Mike. I'm Mike from Canmore. Canmore. <laughs> <laughs> Angry Scott Jock McBile, also played by Morgan. Self-righteous movie critic Gilbert Smythe Bite Me, played by Abbott. <laughs> and chain-smoking bingo player Brenda, played by Lubagoy. These characters would also <laughs> occasionally feature in sketches of their own but were usually used at the beginning of the show to deliver a stream of one-line jokes commenting on the news of the week. Like the radio show, the TV program also featured frequent sketches with politicians who were portrayed as a various caricatur caricatures of their most infamous personality quirks. These included Prime Minister Jean Chrétien, played by Abbott, who could barely speak a sentence of, sentence of English without committing at least a dozen outlandish errors. Preston Manning, played by Ferguson, who loved to shout, Reform! <laughs> In a nasally voice. I'm Preston Manning, leader of the Reform Party. <laughs> a screaming bitchy Sheila Copps, played by Goy. The tyrannical Lucien Bouchard. The dopey, overly image-conscious Stockwell Day. The strutting and pompous Joe Clark. And the power-hungry Paul Martin were all played by Don Ferguson. Talented man. Do you also mention, I'm sorry if I missed it, did you mention Lubo Goy does a great impersonation of uh, Queen Liz? <laughs> yeah, so I actually didn't really, but uh, she does. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, she nails it completely. Not so much like looks-wise, not so much. Oh, absolutely not. But, but her, her, her voice. voice, yeah. You can definitely tell in some, like, now knowing that this show started on the radio, it makes a lot more sense. In some ways, just because like they were good at nailing the physical comedy, but their voices are so good that you could sort of tell like sometimes that they were just they'd practice that. It makes some sense. Yeah. The fact that they started on radio for such a long time, I think, is what actually made them a lot more like a lot more successful on television. Absolutely. Over time. Yeah. Many real-life politicians also made appearances on the show after interacting directly with their parodic counterparts. Yep. So one of the most famous ones is uh, like someone doing an impersonation of Jack Layton, and then at the end of the episode, Jack Layton actually comes out. It's great. Young Chrétien <laughs> did yeah. the same thing with Roger Abbott yeah. and like kind of pushed him out of the way. Yeah. It was really funny. Yeah. Preston Manning, to his credit, was in a 
Jeez. was in an episode yep. with this character. Yeah. Can I just quickly say something yeah. for the record? Manning, stop emailing me. <laughs> like, seriously. No, we're not going to work well together. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. I'm sick of getting emails from the Manning Center. That's hilarious and weird. It's it's so stupid. Why do you get emails from the Manning Center? I don't know how they got my email, but that's what it... Anyway. <laughs> <All right. laughs> I'll explain after the episode, but I'll cut that out. I mean, no, I'm interested. I feel like the listeners are probably interested. Okay, well, I got an email from the Manning... No one's gonna know who the no one's gonna know who the, know who the fucking Manning Center is <laughs> with our listeners' chips, but they're a conservative organization, and they emailed me. And literally, when I saw who they like, who sent me the email, my email back was, "How did you get my email? Don't email me again. No, I do not support the Manning Center, and I've never supported Preston Manning." That's that's the only Manning I enjoy. Is I support impersonators. I Preston support Manning. the impersonations of you. I do not support the man. <sighs> I'm sure oh, he's a nice man. guy. I just don't like his politics. But anyway. Yeah. Sorry, like rant him. over. That's okay. <laughs> that was worth it. Um, anyway, the most the most popular recurring character on the show, who I mentioned earlier slightly, was that of Colonel Teresa Stacy. <laughs> Who <laughs> was played by Don Ferguson? <laughs> oh, Stacy would load up the chicken cannon with uh, and fire rubber chickens and various other assorted projectiles at whomever he deemed the most annoying public figure of the week. And it so was... I mentioned earlier that I found a compilation of every single chicken cannon, yeah. and I was going to post it on our Facebook page. Do go for it. Um, it's it's also he would like fill it with stuff that would seem to be. Um, relevant at the time, like yeah. like for Thanksgiving, he would load it with like turkey dinner, turkey dinner stuffing, yeah. uh, the 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 pie, and then they would actually shoot this thing. I actually had the great pleasure of meeting both Ferguson and Abbott what? before he passed away. I was young, I was really young, Jealous. so I was fortunate enough to meet them, and they they were still working on the show too. We got a oh, tour yeah. of CBC Studios. That's cool. And uh, we we asked them about the chicken cannon. And he's like, "Oh no no, it's real. Like it actually shoots, which is awesome. I, I wish I could remember which, uh, like what kind of people were. They've done like well, just whoever he deemed the most annoying public figure. So sometimes it was politicians, sometimes it was celebrities, sometimes it was like I don't know whoever. It was generals like committees or like a, like if it was a scandal, yeah. he would it would be the whole scandal." I'm pretty sure more than once a prime minister was Yeah, I think, oh, most years, to be honest. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it was the chicken cannon was always... Ugh, the best. Teresa, Teresa was great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, anyway. Members of the cast retired or stepped back, and new members joined the crew throughout, which added new, and re- new recurring characters. I mean, as time went on, they needed to do different impersonations, so they needed new people. Stephen Harper became a great recurring character. They did a live episode in March 2007, and with it being a smashing success, they did an entire season called Air Farce Live, which was a lot of fun, actually. I do remember it. Remember the, I remember the special starting. It was uh, Abbott and Goy saying, like, having kind of a, like, did kind of a monologue describing the history of it, and then they were like, and now the three most terrifying, terrifying words in television, Air Farce Live. <laughs> I vaguely remember it. We never watched... I used to watch... Royal Canadian Air Force all the time. Same. And, yeah. Definitely stepped back over the years, but 
The show was canceled after the 2008 season, like I mentioned, but with recurring New Year's Eve specials they, uh, that continued, um, troop members retired and joined, and some died, unfortunately. John Morgan passed away in 2009, I believe. Yeah. So Roger Abbott passed away from leukemia in 2011. And while ratings for the show remained strong, uh, so that New Year's Eve special in 2011, the crew didn't actually really, the troop wasn't really sure if they wanted to do it, but they were kind of coaxed into it by their producers and... Uh, so they did it anyways. It was good. <laughs> <laughs> While ratings for the show remained strong, drawing over a million viewers in 2017-18, the CBC informed the troop in May of 2019 that the 2019 year-end special would be the final due to, budget, due to budgetary cuts, unfortunately. It was broadcast on December 30th, 2019, and included a new topical material, obviously, as well as highlights of the troop's history, and included tributes to the deceased members John Morgan, Roger Abbott, and Dave Broadfoot. So, yeah. Oh, what a show. Yeah, it's a pretty amazing show. Classic. I want to give a quick shout-out to Stuart McLean's The Vinyl Cafe. Yeah. This was, we listen to this every Sunday, but for those of you who don't know, The Vinyl Cafe was it was hosted by Stuart McLean. I don't, I don't know how long it was, but it was a long time, but every Sunday it would air on CBC. And the main, the main focus of The Vinyl Cafe was Stuart McLean's stories about Dave and Morley, who are a wife and husband and wife character and the crazy antics that they get into throughout their life and the vinyl cafe is actually the name of dave's record shop in toronto yeah they don't really exist no but you really got to know david morley like they were like the yeah they were like the neighbors you knew that crazy stuff happened to them mm -hmm. and sunday night was like them coming for dinner and explaining what happened the previous week it was really cool because it definitely like continued on through like long past the days of when radio shows really were a thing, but it was like a traditional radio show. Like it was a traditional radio serial. And that was always really cool to me. My, oh, yeah. my dad and I listened to it as well. Yeah. My favorite episode that I'm going to mention, because they have the compilations of the stories, the David Morley stories on CD. But my favorite personal story is there's one Dave. Uh, the most famous one is when Dave cooked a turkey. Yes. Um, which I've only heard once in my life. <gasps> it's amazing. So I need to listen again. But my personal favorite is Dave uh, is walking by a garbage can and and he takes in a deep breath and he feels like he's inhaled something and he's like coughing and whatnot. And he looks and there's all these flies around the, the garbage can. And he's like, I've inhaled a fly. So he's certain that there's this fly living in his lungs. <laughs> So at first, like the first bit that he starts, he goes back to the record store and, he, and he's trying to hold his breath <laughs> to suffocate the fly. And then he realizes, wait a minute, this fly, he's probably just as terrified. He's in a new place. He probably can't see. He's like, wait, no, he and I are brothers. So the only thing he can think of is he grabs a, a light and then starts like opens his mouth as wide as he can and starts putting this light towards his mouth his mouth and then he looks outside and one of his one of his buddies is outside staring at him but yeah that's that's like the first bit of the story but yeah dave swallows a fly well inhales a fly but you never really know if he actually inhaled the fly or not but he kind of develops this bond with this fly in his lungs. It's like Schrodinger's fly. Yes. I don't know if I did or I didn't, but something's up. Yeah. So, but it's, so it's, it's just ridiculous 
situations like that. Yes. And Dave is also not necessarily the brightest person. No. Uh, and also, like a lot of the, the a lot of it would deal with their two children. Yes. So yeah, but it was it it was an amazing show. Uh, Stuart McLean passed away yeah. a couple of years ago. Sud like very actually quite yeah. It was it was not. He wasn't sick or anything that we knew of. Like it was. Yeah, it, I I think he was. And yeah, he kept he just, it hidden. Yeah, yeah. yeah so. Like it was unexpected to everyone. Yeah, I mean, it was very sad because like honestly, he was really a Canadian icon. So we we miss you and we'll miss David Morley. Mm. But yeah. So I just wanted to briefly mention the Vinyl Cafe for sentimental reasons. Totally. So we're kind of moving more into like the film and TV side now. Obviously, I I, I thought Air Force was a really good uh, transition piece for that sense because uh, it started on the radio and really moved into TV and mm. kind of showed the... Because I didn't really realize it was on the air. It was really existed for that long. Like Yeah, it's crazy how long. It went from basically like the group, the troupe existed from 1970 until ni- 2019. Like yeah. that's pretty wild. Uh, I mean, to be fair, the, well, it's about 2008. Because like the, reu- the New Year's Eve episodes were reunions. They weren't really like. No, but yeah. I mean, they were still together as a troupe until 2019. Yeah, which is wild. Um, and I think they got a very, I think it was it was good that they ended when they did because it was actually. It was starting to go downhill for sure. It was starting to go you, downhill. You, but could, you could really miss the presence of the original, of, of Abbott and Ferguson. Oh, and, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. but it was a, it was a dignified ending. The, end, the, the ending the, episode was great. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And that, I just really quickly, I want to say there's not a lot of shows or groups or whatnot that get that that chance so no it's true so one of my personal favorite so there's a lot of canadian actors so like i mentioned there's a lot of canadian actors who who've become famous in america <laughs> uh on the screen really and uh one of my personal favorites the goat leslie nielsen um was born in uh regina saskatchewan i actually didn't know that yeah he was for some reason like i it's one of those things where I feel like I knew it, but didn't actually. I don't know. Well, it's it's. I mean, most people assume they were either probably born in Toronto or Montreal, yeah. which is fair. But yeah, Nielsen's half uncle, John Herschel, was an actor known for his portrayal of Doctor Christian in the radio series of that name and the subsequent television series and films. In nineteen, in a nineteen ninety four Boston Globe article, Nielsen explained that I did learn very early that when I would mention my uncle, people would look at me as if I were the biggest liar in the world. Then I would take them home and show them in by eight by ten glossies, and things would change quite drastically. So I began to think that maybe this acting business was not a bad idea, much as I was very shy about it, and certainly without courage regarding it. My uncle died not too long after I was in a position to know him. I regret that I had not a chance to know him better. So Nielsen actually, <laughs> Nielsen lived in the Northwest Territories for a while, uh, when his father was with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. His father was an abusive man who beat Leslie and uh, his brothers and his wife or like siblings and his mom um and he definitely wanted to escape so he graduated at age 17 and joined the royal canadian air force he was legally deaf but he wore hearing aids most he wore hearing aids most of his life um and when he finished his graduation from the victoria school of arts in edmonton of all places (laughs) nielsen enlisted in the air force again and trained as an aerial gunner during world war ii he was too young to be fully trained or sent overseas but you know joined us anyway (laughs) He worked briefly as a desk jockey in, in Calgary here at a radio Sweet. station. Uh, love him. Before he enrolled at the Lauren Green Academy of Radio Arts in Toronto. 
Uh, while he was studying there, he received a scholarship to the neighborhood playhouse. He noted, I couldn't refuse, but I must say, when you come from the land of the snow goose, the moose, and wool to New York, you're bringing, very, you're bringing every ton of hayseed and country bumpkin that you, that you packed. As long as I didn't open my mouth, I felt a certain security. But I always thought I was going to be unmasked. Okay, pack your stuff. Well, what's the matter? We've discovered you have no talent. We're shipping you back to Canada. <laughs> he had quite the imposter syndrome. Much like all of us do. <laughs> he moved to New York, New York City for his scholarship, studying theater and music at the Neighborhood Playhouse while performing in Summerstock Theater. Afterward, he attended Actors Studio until his first television appearance in 1950 on an episode of Studio One alongside Charleston Heston, for which he was paid $75, which in 2019 was the equivalent of $800. Oh. So, not bad. It's big money, I guess. So I'd take it. Yeah, right. <laughs> Same. I would literally, I would actually take $75 like now in 2020 money. (laughs) (laughs) Any money is good. Uh, TV and movies, though, are really where he shone. He began his dramatic roles on television during television's golden age, really, appearing in 46 live programs in 1950 alone. Wow. Yeah. He said there was very little gold. We only got $75 or $100 per show. So that's what it adds up. He narrated documentaries, which would be great. And commercials and most of his early work as a dramatic actor was pretty uneventful. Which, you know, fair enough, because he's pretty fucking hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, in 1956, he made his feature film debut in the Michael Curtis, or Curtis directed film the, the Vagabond King in the Seattle Post-Intelligencer. Nielsen remembered Curtis as a sadist, a charming sadist. What a sadist. <laughs> and uh, he called this film The Vagabond Turkey. Though the film was not a success, producer Nicholas Nafak offered him an audition for the science fiction film Forbidden Planet, resulting in Nielsen taking a long, track, long contract with MGM. Forbidden Planet was a success, and other roles in MGM films such as Ransom, The Opposite Sex, and Hot Summer Night followed. He won the lead role in 1957, opposite Debbie Reynolds, in the romantic comedy Tammy and the Bachelor. That movie was actually the first that sort of finally gave him some credibility as a dramatic actor, not just like... I don't yeah. know. He didn't have a lot of chops for a while. But he uh, really hit a stride, though, when he started doing comedy, in my opinion. I don't know. He's a really good actor. I actually don't. Oh, no. I can't say that. He was an extremely good actor, but we're here to talk about the funny stuff. So (laughs) um, his two most famous appearances, I would say, are The Naked Gun and and Airplane. Yeah, well, what's interesting is people, audiences were shocked to see him in Airplane because of his, because they knew him as a serious serious actor. actor, And... It's funny, too, because, I mean, if you've never seen the movie, which if you haven't, you really should. He is so serious and so deadpan. Like, yeah. You know. I can hear Brian telling me. I just want to tell you both good luck. We're all counting on you. Brian has said that to me in so many fucking games that we've played. <laughs> I am serious and don't call me sure. <laughs> I'll clip that in right there. Yeah. Can you fly this plane and land it? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. <laughs> yeah, so he played the role he played in, in Airplane. If you've never seen it, I will describe the plot, but I won't give too many spoilers. So the film ultimately is a parody of like disaster films such as Zero Hour and Airport, and it was based on building a comedy around actors known for dramatic roles. So that was kind of the point. So other stars included Robert Stack, Peter Graves, and Lloyd Bridges. And like I mentioned, Nielsen's, Nielsen's deadpan delivery contrasted with the absurdity of the movie. 
<laughs> surrounding him. So the line I just mentioned that we just played uh, when asked, you know, Shirley, you can't be serious. He responds with the curt, I am serious and don't call me Shirley. That's just kind of illustrative of the whole movie. He's, yeah. you know, describing very ridiculous situations <laughs> in such a deadpan tone that it's just, it slays me in every way. That's absolutely what makes that movie great to me i love deadpan and it's me too and it's just everybody in the movie right because it's so serious but there's just these moments of like hilarious just even the like cut scenes where there's no talking are kind of deadpan in a way right yeah. like they just give that vibe so nielsen reflected on that line in a lot of interviews saying that he i thought it was amusing but it never occurred to me that it was going to become a trademark it's such a surprise the thing comes out people say what did he say <laughs> like what <laughs> Nielsen said he was pleased and honored that he had the chance to deliver that line. <laughs> <laughs> the American Film Institute included the film in its list of the top 10 comedy films of all time in 2008. And uh, a 2007 survey in the UK, UK judged it as the second greatest comedy of all time. Because it's, yeah, you know, pretty fucking great. The directors had cast Nielsen for his ability to play like a fish in water, saying you had, could have the cast, or you could have... You could have cast funny people and done it with everybody winking, goofing off, and silly, but we wanted people to be oblivious to the comedy. So, like, they wanted that, yeah. The contrast is actually what makes that movie so funny. Um, for Nielsen, Airplane marked a shift from dramatic roles to deadpan comedy. When it was suggested his role in Airplane was against his type, Nielsen protested that he had always been cast against type before, and that comedy was what he always wanted to do. The same actors, or the same directors, cast Nielsen in a similar style, in their TV series, Police Squad. <laughs> the series introduced Nielsen as Frank, Dur or Frank, Frank Drebin, the stereotypical police officer modeled after serious characters in earlier police series. Uh, police Squad's opening sequence was based on the 1950s show M-Squad, which featured Lee Marvin and opened with footage of a police car roving through a dark urban setting with a big band playing a jazz song in the background. Very film noir. L.A. noir-like. Yeah, very. <laughs> <laughs> the Hank Sims voiceover in the show's organization into act with an epilogue was homage to Quinn Martin police dramas, including The Fugitive, The Streets of San Francisco, Barnaby, Barnaby Jones, The FBI, and Canon. Nielsen portrayed a serious character whose one-liners appeared accidental, ac accidental next to the pratfalls and sight gags that were happening all around him. Although the show only lasted six seasons, or six episodes, sorry, Nielsen received an Emmy. Or an Emmy. Well, he received an Emmy nomination for Outstanding Lead Actor in a Comedy Series after six episodes. <laughs> like, small sample size. But it was obviously successful. And six years after it was canceled, the film Naked Gun from the, police, from the files of Police Squad returned Nielsen to his role as Frank Drebin. So, movie. Oh. It involved a ruthless drug king trying hypnosis to assassinate Queen Elizabeth II. And Nielsen did many of his own stunts. He said, you have an idea of how you're going to do something, it's an, and it's your vision. And unless you do it, he doesn't really stand, like, unless you do it, it doesn't stand a chance. So he does, yeah, yeah to his credit, he did his own stunts. Uh, the movie grossed over $78 million <laughs> oh, and was wow. well received by his credits. One of the reviews, his, uh, uh, Ebert's three and a half star review out of four noted, you laugh and then you laugh at yourself for laughing. And it's true. One of the... I'm just thinking that right now because it's weird. One of the actors in that movie is O.J. Simpson. Yeah. Yeah. It was before, you know, he yeah. murdered two people. But yeah. It was and very weird. One of my favorite line or one of my favorite scenes in that movie is when he's, uh, you know, it's like, 
My classic love story, boy meets girl. It's <laughs> the <laughs> same old story. Boy finds girl, boy loses girl, girl finds boy. Boy forgets girl, boy remembers girl. And girl dies in a tragic blimp accident over the Orange Bowl on New Year's Day. Good year. No, the worst. The Naked Gun spawned two sequels, The Naked Gun, Two and a Half, A Smell of Fear, and Naked Gun, 33 and a Third, The Final Insult. The Naked Gun, Two and a Half, grossed more than the original with 86.9 million, while 33 and a Third grossed 51.0 million. Nielsen remained open to a fourth Naked Gun film, although he doubted that it would be produced. I don't think so, he said in 2005. If there hasn't been one by now, don't think it's going to happen. But I do think it would be wonderful. Nielsen briefly appeared on the World Wrestling Federation program in the summer of 1994 on WWF Monday Night Raw, capitalizing on Frank Drebin. I love this man. <laughs> Nielsen and George Kennedy were hired as sleuths to unravel the mystery of the Undertaker who had dispersed at January's Royal Rumble event. Or disappeared, sorry, not dispersed. Jesus. Um, at SummerSlam 1994. In a Naked Gun parody, they were hot on the case. In fact, they were standing on a case. Although he did not find The Undertaker, the case had been closed. The literal case had been shut. Thus, they solved the mystery. In 1990, <laughs> Nielsen appeared as Frank Drebin character in advertisements in the United Kingdom for Red Rock Cider. So, The Naked Gun was insanely popular. Yeah, so he did a bunch of other kind of mo like funny movies. All of which were essentially similar to The Naked Gun. But he actually had a bit of a renaissance in the 2000s with doing uh, scary movies. Oh, yeah. His first major success actually came in Scary Movie 3. He appeared as President Harris uh, and led to a second appearance in Scary Movie 4. And that was actually the first time that he'd reprised a character since Frank Drebin. Hmm. Yeah. So, Leslie Nielsen is one of my favorites. But uh, now we're moving into the really famous <laughs> comedians. Uh, Lauren Michaels being one of the most. Yeah. Surprise, surprise. I bet you guys didn't know that. Oh, shocking. Lauren Michaels is Canadian. Whoa. Although his place of birth is actually kind of disputed. Like, so he was either born in Toronto or Palestine, and his parents moved to Toronto. But he started his career as a writer and broadcaster on CBC Radio. He moved to Los Angeles in 1968 to work as a writer for Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In and The Beautiful Phyllis Diller Show. He began probably his most famous creation in 1975, NBC's Saturday Night Live. In 1977, the show changed its name to just Saturday Night Live. Uh, there was an initial conflict with an ABC show called Saturday Night Live with Howard Cosell, which had debuted in 1975 but was subsequently canceled in 1976 because it sucked. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine. Shows do get canceled for no reason, but I assume that one sucked. The show immediately established a reputation for being cutting-edge and unpredictable as it performed live in front of a studio audience and became the vehicle for launching the careers of some of the most famous comedians in the U.S. Such as one of our personal favorites, Mike Myers. I don't know. It's the launching point for a lot of them. I and mean, Saturday Night Live is definitely more of an American yeah. uh, phenomenon than a Canadian one. Absolutely. It's popular here, but... Yeah. It's definitely more. It does. It's definitely more of an American identity than Canadian. Canadian, but it definitely still had lots of Canadian content in terms of actors. Uh, Mike Myers probably is the most famous, but or Dan Aykroyd. Or Dan Aykroyd. One or the other, really. Yeah. I think it depends on what era you started watching. For some people, it's Aykroyd, and then for some people, it's Myers. Yeah. I would say yeah. Yeah. Quick little side note on Mike Myers. Wayne's World is probably one of my favorite things ever created, <laughs> and. Uh, 
don't know. Like, I don't really want to talk that much about Mike Myers. You can look him up yourself, honestly. <laughs> he's important, but, like, I don't need to give a biography of him. Yeah. But he's been in, like, a lot of movies that honestly were, like, quite... It, I, I liked a lot of movies, like, a lot of his movies. He was definitely a 90s star. He, yeah, a lot of his movies in the t- early 2000s were a little hit and miss, but there was a couple that, honestly, like, I probably shouldn't have liked that I did anyway. <laughs> Well, the love guru made me want to die. Yeah, that was terrible. Some famous movies he was in, he, adaptations of Wayne's World. And then, obviously, Austin Powers. Yeah, it definitely is most famous, probably his most yeah. famous. Which is probably one of my favorite. Honestly, I, I would say for me, Wayne's World and Austin Powers are my like favorite Mike Myers performances. Mm-hmm. Like, truly. Um, they're, I would say, also the best, but... <laughs> let's be real. But, uh, yeah, no, I love him. But anyway, SNL is really where he got his start, like many others, including a lot of American comedians like Will Ferrell, and he's one of my favorite SNL people generally. Will Ferrell, definitely. Uh, Aykroyd, Belushi. Yeah. Well, Um, all of the Ghostbusters guys all got their start. Well, actually, no, they didn't get their start in SNL, but I'll get into that. Um, But they became popular on SNL. Yeah, well, they're not really Canadians, so we don't really have to talk about them. Aykroyd is. Well, true. Fair point. Uh, <laughs> anyways, sort of back to SNL, but uh, Michaels worked originally as a producer of the show, but he was also a writer and eventually was became the executive producer. Um, occasionally, he appears on screen, usually with deadpan humor. Throughout the show's run, it has been nominated for 156 Emmys, and it's one in 36. It has consistently been one of the highest rated late night television programs, and aside from a brief hiatus in the 1980s, Michaels has been with SNL for all of it. My favorite thing that Lauren Michaels has ever really given the world... Uh, are my well, two of my favorite things are Amy Poehler and Lisa Tina Fey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah. One of my favorite shows that Michaels is part of, kind of, by way of Tina Fey in large part, is 30 Rock, which is essentially like a dramatized version of like the creation of SNL. It's kind of meta, which I appreciate. But I also think legitimately 30 Rock is one of the greatest comedies ever written. Like, it's so good. So Michaels, uh, one of Michaels' other projects, like we mentioned, was the Canadian sketch comedy series Kids in the Hall. Great, great, great. You may recognize the song from our intro. From the intro, yeah. Um, the troupe consisted of Dave Foley, Kevin McDonald, Bruce McCulloch, Mark McKinney, and Scott Thompson. They appeared as almost all of the characters throughout the series of all genders and wrote almost all of the sketches. The series aired first aired as a one-hour pilot special, which aired on HBO and CBC in 1988, and began airing as a regular weekly series on both networks in 1989. The regular series premiered on July 21st, 1989 on HBO and September 14th on CBC. The first three seasons aired on HBO in the U.S. before it moved to CBS in 1993, where it would stay until moving into late Friday nights after two more seasons. CBC aired the show for the whole duration of its run. The aforementioned theme song is called Having an Average Weekend by Canadian band Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet. It's a great name for a band. It is. Despite the fact that it had SNL connections vis-a-vis Lauren Michaels, the show was actually more like Monty Python's Flying Circus. Yes. Yeah. Quirky, surreal, frequently utilizing drag with very few popular culture represent or uh, impressions or parodies. The only recurring celebrity impression was Queen Elizabeth II, who was played by Scott Thompson. That's <laughs> <laughs> great. Um, a recurring character was Mr. Tyzik, played by McKinney, who pretended to crush people's heads from a distance with his fingers. <laughs> I'm crushing your head. <laughs> McKinney also played Chicken Lady, a shrill-voiced, sexually excitable human-chicken hybrid. (laughs) 
Another recurring character was Cabbage Head, play by, played by McCulloch, who was a gruff-voiced, cigar-smoking misogynist who frequently used the fact that he had cabbage in place of hair as a, means, <laughs> as a means to get pity from women in hopes of sleeping with them. We told you it was bizarre. <laughs> yeah. Many of the sketches were fe- featured gay characters and themes, because most of the, and most of these sketches were written and starred in by Scott Thompson, who is gay. They often appeared as themselves and not as characters, and some sketches dealt with the fact or dealt directly with the fact that they were a comedy troupe producing a TV show. For example, Kevin McDonald announces that if the next sketch, which he has written, is not successful, the others are considering kicking him out of the group. In another episode, Thompson declares that he isn't gay anymore, which throws the other kids into a panic, as they fear that he will il- the news will alienate the troupe's considerable gay fan base. In another sketch, in which an employee, Foley, asks his boss, McDonald, for a raise, McDonald complains that the setup is cliche and his character is one-dimensional. Monologues were also a staple of the show. Scott Thompson's Buddy Cole monologues are the best known, but the kids also performed solo pieces as well. McCullough was, in particular, performed monologues that consisted of him acting as himself, telling hyperbolic stories of the struggles and day-to-day experiences in his life and or the lives of others. Prominent examples from the kids include Foley describing his positive attitude towards menstruation, McKinney in, char- in character as a high-pitched recluse who is describing with intense fascination his hideously infected and bruised toe, and in a gag reminiscent of Bob Newart, a distraught McDonald calling a best friend's young son to tell him his father died, only to have the child end up consoling him, even going so far as quoting famous philosophers on the ultimate emptiness of life. The show originated in Canada, like we mentioned, of course, or we wouldn't be talking about it. And the content was at times edited slightly for U.S. broadcast tastes. Sketches mocking religion were sometimes cut down or removed, necessitating the addition of material from other episodes to round out the half hour. Some U.S. channels censored the occasional nudity as well, such as when Foley revealed to Thompson he had inexplicably grown breasts. (laughs) Among the more controversial sketches was the final sketch of season one, Dr. Seuss Bible, in which the troupe tells the story of Jesus Christ's crucifixion in the style of <laughs> in the style of children's author Dr. Seuss. <laughs> uh, though the show occasionally featured guest actors, the kids played nearly all the parts, both male and female, themselves. In contrast to Monty Python, where the members often don drag to portray older women, but usually utilized women such as Carol Cleveland and Connie Booth to play young and attractive female characters, all the kids regularly played old, both old and young women. The frequent cross-dressing became one of the show's trademarks. Female impersonation had, become during their stage show, had begun during their stage show because they found themselves writing female characters but had no female member to play them. <laughs> so, as Scott Thompson explained, the way we played women, we weren't winking at the audience. We were never like, ooh, look at me, I'm a guy in a dress. Never. We would always try to be real and that, I think, freaked people out. <laughs> um, the CBC sh- aired the show through its entire run. Seasons 1 through 3 aired on HBO. In the fall of 1992, CBS picked up the show and it aired on late night Fridays showing repeats, while HBO aired the new episodes of season three. In 1993, CBS aired new episodes starting with the season four, and the final season aired on Fridays after the late show with David Letterman. The series series finale aired in November 1994, and in 1995, it was replaced with the late, late show. Mm. My other favorite Canadian TV show also on the CBC because everything's on the CBC you know what actually the CBC has had some very very good runs mm-hmm. oh yeah one of my personal favorites is this hour has 22 minutes which I mean I think kind of it didn't well it didn't really start before the daily show did it 
I don't think it did, but... Oh, it did, actually. Bizarre 22 Minutes started in 1993. Oh. Like, before the CBC picked it up. It's a parody of, like, news programming, but it's commonly shortened to 22 Minutes because Bizarre 22 Minutes is a long name. But it was launched in 1993 during Canada's 35th general election, and the show focuses mostly on Canadian politics with a combination of news parody and sketch comedy and satirical editorials and some pretty hilarious musical comedy occasionally. <laughs> Originally featuring the GOAT, Kathy Jones, Rick Mercer, Greg Tomey, and Mary Walsh. All of them. Actually, all of those are the GOATs, really. <laughs> Love them. The series featured satirical sketches of the weekly news and Canadian political events. The show's format is a mock news program, intercut with com- or comic sketches, parody commercials, and humorous interviews of public figures. Its full name is a parody of This Hour Has Seven Days, a CBC News magazine from the 1960s. The 22 minutes refers to the fact that a half-hour television program in Canada and the U.S. is typically 22 minutes long with eight minutes of commercials. Jones and Walsh had previously worked together on the sketch comedy series Codco, C-O-D, I don't know, Codco, um, on which Tommy sometimes appeared as a guest. Mercer had been a notable young writer and performer on his own, touring several successful one-man shows of comedic political commentary. Mercer, his own like solo stuff is hilarious. Like His rants are honestly really great. The show has been recognized with 24 Gemini Awards and 11 Canadian Comedy Awards. 22 Minutes is still broadcast on the CBC network today. Originally, it was aired on Mondays for several seasons and later on Fridays. Currently, it airs on Tuesdays at 8.30 p.m. Shout out to the 22 Minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Some regular segments and characters over the years, which have been great, have been Talking to Americans, in which Rick Mercer goes to the United States. Talking to Americans as if from a Canadian news program, asking them about Canadian issues. The object is to see how little some Americans know about their northern neighbors. It's kind of rude, honestly, but... It's It's pretty funny. (laughs) The piece was so popular that the CBC had Mercer create a one-hour TV special based on the segment. It became the highest-rated comedy special in Canadian television history when it aired on Canada Day 2001. (laughs) That says a lot about Canada. (laughs) Popular bits included Mercer getting Americans to say congratulations, Canada, on legalizing VCRs and getting a professor at Princeton University to sign a petition against the restarting of the annual Toronto polar bear hunt. (laughs) In in an election 2000 segment, he convinced then-governor of Texas George W. Bush that Canada's Prime Minister Jean Chrétien was named Jean Poutin (laughs) and that he was supporting Bush's candidacy. The success of the CBC special got Mercer attention on numerous American media outlets, including ABC's Nightline. But after September 11th, 2001, Mercer abandoned the concept. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Another popular segment is No Pun Intended, which is like a ludicrous-like rapper politician who's played by Sean Majumder, who frequently raps about election issues and what he will do if he's elected. One of my personal favorites... A 22 minutes sexual affairs correspondent, Babe Bennett, (laughs) played by Kathy Jones. Babe is a sassy suffragette, 1940s style, who talks about sexual matters. She ends ends each segment by saying, I'm just goofing around. (laughs) Another really great one is uh, Marg Delahunty, played by Mary Walsh. Basically what happens is, Mary Walsh crashes press conferences, hosts this, quote, sleepover for the nation's leading female and gay politicians, and threatens to smite the likes of politicians as Marg Princess Warrior, who is a loose parody of Xena the Princess Warrior. It's pretty great. Her segments are hilarious. She basically just, like, accosts politicians. 
<laughs> One of my other super favorites is Mrs. Enid and Eulalia, who are Kathy Jones and Mary Walsh, respectively. And after Mary Walsh left the show, Jones just did the show herself. Basically, it's two elderly women who talk about daily events, uh, and they're just hilarious. They go for walks, and they're just crusty <laughs> as hell and amazing. We listened to one before we started, and it was... Yeah. You should post that one on... Yeah, I'll post on the, it on the, on Facebook, the Facebook page. page. Some great characters played on the show. Like They also do impersonations, obviously, of politicians and famous characters. So uh, there's actually a very great impersonation of Stuart McLean on the show. Oh, boy. Done by Crawford. Some of my favorites um, are done by proud Newfoundlander Mark Critch. His impersonations of Rex Murphy are <laughs> just... Gold. Oh, top-notch. Top-notch. But I also, of course, love Kathy Jones' impersonation of Queen Elizabeth II. It's quite classic. She also does a very, very good parody of uh, CNN host Nancy Grace. (laughs) Oh, God, it's fabulous. Yeah, truly one of my favorite shows. One of my favorite, probably my favorite, or no, uh, after Air Force, this is my favorite comedy troupe. It's an organization called The Second City, and it was originally opened in Toronto, and it began as a troupe in 1955, founded by a duo of Comedia dell'arte performers. For those of you who don't know, Comedia dell'arte is probably the best-known Western comedy um, teaching. They are from the University of Chicago, and their names are David Shepard and Paul Sills. The first review show of Second City premiered on December 16, 1959, at 1842 North Wells Street in Chicago. From there, the organization operated regular review shows and even were invited to perform on Broadway in 1961. They also taught new, like up-and-coming comedians how to do improvisational comedy and co- comedy dell'arte and all sorts of different like slapstick, clowning. Well, not so much clowning, but y- you know what I mean. Yeah. And that was the that was a big thing. So they had a very great comedy school in North America, like for North America. The reason why I'm talking about Second City is because a second location was opened in Toronto in 1973, bringing a new range of cast members to its ranks. Notable cast members include John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, John Candy, Gilda Radner, Eugene Levy, and Catherine O'Hara. Yeah. And all of a lot of uh, you might recognize a lot of these people name people's names because they ended up being hired by SNL. Mm-hmm. So SNL owes a lot to Second City. But what the main thing I want to talk about is the TV series that they had. So in 1976, Second City Toronto producers Bernard Salins and Andrew Alexander began discussing a potential expansion of the Second City brand to a much wider audience through television. He enlisted the help of Candy, Joe Flaherty, Levy, Harold Ramis, Del Del Close, Sheldon Patankin, and others to help develop this new television series. Eventually, after bouncing ideas around, there came the suggestion of making a comedy sketch show with the theme of it being presented as, quote, the world's smallest TV station, end quote. The skits would be presented as feature programs that were on the station. Mm-hmm. Thus, SCTV was born. 
and Global Network picked up the show in 1976, and the first six episodes aired with one episode per month. <laughs> the entire original cast, except for Harold Ramis, were from Second City's Toronto's branch. It was a, the first Canadian-produced television series to move onto American TV and be a massive hit with the audiences down south. NBC picked up the series for syndication in the States in 1981, and in Canada, the show remained on Global until 1979, and then moved to CBC for the remainder of the series until 1984. So notable acts that I'm kind of remember, Joe Flaherty, he played the station manager. So he's a guy that wears like a, a fedora kind of hat, a white fedora hat and an all white suit. He's got a mustache and he's in a wheelchair. Yeah. And he's always accosted by the two two of the technicians who are very weird. <laughs> and they would always like, they're like this weirdly weird like sound with like, ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> and they would like lean into the, into the camera yeah. <laughs> in tune with this thing. And he would, they would always accost the station manager. I couldn't find what the station manager's name was. Other ones I uh, included, I showed the Salinci, it's a game show called Half Wits, where the goal is to get one question right. And it's like, this is our sixth week running with it. And all of them are still tied at zero. <laughs> and like, for example, they're asked uh, for European, one of the categories is European cuisine. Mm -hmm. He's like saying, I'm asking for an Italian meal. One of them says, I'll say cheese omelets. And uh, another guy says Swedish meatballs. And the annoyed host says Swedish meatballs. Where do you think Swedish meatballs are from? And then another guy hits the buzzer and he's like, Arthur, Spain. <laughs> so the legacy that S SCTV has brought to audiences and like the world of comedy is it brought so many of the cast members from its ranks into SNL. At least the earlier, earlier cast members were educated at Second City and they ended up being on probably one of the one of the most well-known sketch comedy shows ever and arguably the most successful. Bob and Doug McKenzie, I'm sure you've probably heard of them. Uh, they got their start on SNL or on SCTV, excuse me. And of course, Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara are are massive icons here in Canada. They were in all of those like mockumentaries, like A Mighty Wind, Best in Show, those kinds of things. And they were some of the stars of the show for sure. But, um, and Se Second City still operating both in Toronto and Chicago, and they also have a third location in Los Angeles. They're still bringing a lot of talent. And they are definitely one of the greatest comedy troops to exist like greatest comedy organizations to exist 100%. and they brought so many good people like good talent we wouldn't have had ghostbusters without them kind of no shits creek no shits creek no, um, no I mean, anything Eugene no bob and doug mckenzie Ugh. no canadian bacon Ugh. john freaking candy man or uh cool runnings or cool runnings yeah the thing about Eugene Levy is that so many of his movie appearances, he was just like supporting characters, but they're so freaking funny. Yeah. Like, I love him. Um, one of my favorite movies is actually him and Steve Martin. Him and Steve Martin have really good uh, chemistry and has Queen Latifah. It's called Bringing Down the House. Oh uh, yeah. It's just kind of like it's not that good, but it's honestly just funny. Like it's it's really cheesy yeah. and kind of cringy, but 
Well, definitely the best, like those mockumentaries, like Best oh, in Show, yeah. Mighty Winds. Amazing. There's one I'm yeah. forgetting. Waiting for Guffman. Yeah. Yeah. Those are good. And like, I'm pretty sure all of those people, all of the cast and that were from Second City. Oh, also, I don't know if, I don't think it was Second City Toronto, but still worth mentioning. Stephen Colbert yeah. was educated at Second City. But anyway, yeah, so some really great talent there. Just really quickly, I'm going to talk, go back to Quebec. Because we have to talk about a very rather interesting festival that goes on in Quebec. The Juste pour rire Festive. And it was organized in 1983 by Gilbert Rosen as a two-day event. The first festival was along Saint-Denis Street and was made up of free outdoor events consisting of comedic street performances. Albeit, it was only French for the first couple of years. So the first, yeah, the first two festivals were in French only, but in 1985, businessman Andy Nullman became a member of the festival's board, and he wanted to expand the event to be longer and to introduce an, an English-speaking performances in order to cater to the larger to larger audience of the anglophone Montrealers. The festival increased to an entire month of performances, with the first half for French-speaking artists and the second half for English-speaking. Jay Leno was one of the first main performers at that at that year's festivals. So in 1987, Rowan Atkinson made his debut Just for Laughs performance. He was there a few times. Also, Chris Rock at the same performance made his what is considered his breakout performance when he was just 19 years old and three years before he joined the, the ranks of SNL. To put this in perspective, the year before, Jerry Lewis was one of the headliners, or was the headliner at Just for Laughs, and he bombed. And then, apparently, his response to the crit critique was to make very misogynist and, frankly, discriminatory comments. Yeah. So, needless to say, he was never invited back. <laughs> In 1988, Just for Laughs had its first ever TV airing on HBO with host John Candy. Of course. Over the years, famous artists who have performed at Just for Laughs have included Jerry Seinfeld, Jim Carrey, Bobcat Goldthwaite, which makes me super happy, <laughs> uh, Penn and Teller, Drew Carey, Dave Chappelle, etc., etc., etc. Street performances are still a massive part of the festival, which entertain the massive crowds in the audience. And I have to say, it's actually the street performances are actually the best. Yeah, thing I, about the festival. I've attended the have festival. You been? Oh, I'm yeah, I haven't. I have attended the festival, and the street performances are bomb. Yeah, like they're so good. Possibly the most famous aspect of Just for Laughs are the street gags done throughout the festival in the city of Montreal. Random performers go out and about on the streets of the city and pull pranks on unsuspecting passersby. Just for Laughs gigs. Yep. Beginning in 2000. I always hated watching the show. Huh? I always kind of hated it. I never watched it. I never oh, really? It. I loved it. And it's interesting you brought that up because beginning in 2000, Just for Laughs gags began airing on TV showing the best of such pranks. As of 2020, it has done 20 seasons and produced 3,000 episodes. So it's doing pretty well. Just for Last produces annual specials showing stand-up performances from the variety shows. It airs on CBC and the Comedy Network. It's big. Like, it is really is a big yeah, it is. festival. Some One of my favorite, like, stand-up performances was, were always John Panette's performances. Oh, yeah. Uh, one of my favorites, he talks about going skiing. 
<laughs> and basically, like, he had a white snowsuit, and he basically was like, I'm an, an avalanche. <laughs> they should put, like, you remember him talking about how, like, they should put labels on bottles of tequila that have, like, a picture of a skier with a slash through it? <laughs> <laughs> you drink too much of this, you'll go skiing. Yeah. <laughs> they have, like, some of the best stand-up comedians have performed there. And, like, Russell um, Peters, yeah. he's a well-known Canadian stand-up. Um, his famous uh, somebody's gonna get hurt real bad yeah is from there uh, it, well he performed that at just for laughs yeah of course but yeah like a lot of stand-up comedians like you know you've made it as a stand-up when you get invited when you get invited to perform and your performance is short so you gotta kill it oh yeah and of course Penn and Teller have played some like the fact that Penn and Teller like I love Penn and Teller I saw that I went to their show in Vegas oh it's so cool. But yeah, they, they did one of their actually original sketches that they ever did at Just for Laughs, which is uh, called Looks Easy, Doesn't It? Yeah. And showing how sleight of hand works. So unfortunately, not all is glamorous in the Just for Laughs world. Rosen, was uh, he resigned from his position after allegations of sexual misconduct came to light. He then decided to sell the rights to the festival, and for a long time, the idea of the festival came into question as to will it change like will anything change will it not like will it stop will it just be rebranded or something like that well the good news is that american agency icm partners and and ontario comedian howie mandel announced a joint ownership of the festival and they decided to keep most of what was already in place intact including keeping it in montreal and keeping the french language performances which is great because just for laughs is still going somewhat strong i mean covid has fucked it up unfortunately so the first outside of canada festival occurred in hollywood florida which was a popular destination for quebec snowbirds <laughs> it was named just for laughs on vacation <laughs> Love it. Here for it. <laughs> Toronto became the next city to hold their own Just for Laughs festival in 2008 in honor of the 25th anniversary. And TBS sponsored an American Just for Laughs festival in 2009, located in Chicago. And in July 2016, London became the first non-North American city to host Just for Laughs. In response to the COVID pandemic, Just for Laughs originally postponed their festival until the fall for retooling. However, they eventually chose to cancel the whole event. People might not know this, but Quebec is actually hit pretty hard yeah. by the COVID pandemic, and it's getting worse. Bad again. It's getting really bad again. Uh, but so they decided, however, between October 9th and 10th, so we just missed it, sadly, <clears throat> the organizers hosted a two-day online series of performances to help bring back joy. Just for laughs at home? Hey, <laughs> pretty much, yeah. But yeah, and Montreal, is it's still one of the hardest hit, hit cities in Canada from the pandemic. So for them to be able to bring joy again to... Um, a little bit of normalcy, right? Yeah. And the thing is, it's like... Just like today, I sorry, just, I just like today I saw the Calgary Stampede show band is able to restart safely. And that's really like nice to see that just like youth programs like that are still able to somehow continue. And like yeah. for those of you who don't know, the Calgary Stampede show band is a world-class show band like they travel all over the world and i refuse to <laughs> right now they're just happy to be able to play six feet apart yeah yeah but it's uh like the the i guess uh, i'll get to the moral right now before i 
before we kind of go on to our own shit. But uh, I guess the moral is like comedy is really used as a defense mechanism for humanity. Totally. And like you see a lot of comedies coming out of like the Second World War. People needed to laugh again. It was really tragic. Like a lot of we've we've seen a lot of tragic shit go on, even in just Lindsay and I's lifetime. And it's nice to like have people make you laugh. Totally. Because as Stephen Colbert said, uh, you can't be afraid if you're laughing. It's true. Unless you're laughing because you're afraid, but you know. It's hard to feel afraid when you are genuinely laughing. It's true. I'm going to talk a little bit about Mookie Cornish and Christine Cook. So Mookie Cornish, for those of you who don't know, she is someone who lived with us, my brother, my mom, and I, for a long time. She toured with Cirque du Soleil. It's the reason why we went went to Cirque du Soleil. Um, yeah, for those of you who don't know, I toured with Cirque du Soleil for two years. That's a whole different story. That's a whole episode on its own. <laughs> But uh, Mookie is a clown. She was uh, educated at a comedy school in Blue Lake, California called Del Arte. And her specialty really is slapstick comedy. And uh, the show, the the act that she did at Cirque was a magician act, but it kept failing. She was the magician's assistant and she was kind of somewhat trying to steal the show, but also just messing things up because she's a klutz. Like she would slip around the stage and whatnot. I'll see if it's on YouTube and post it to the page because it actually is really funny. I watched it again recently because I have the DVD of the show. Yeah, It's really funny and it really makes me laugh. Uh, recently, she's developed a new character, which she's gone along with named Gloria. I don't want to go too much into that because you really just have to witness it. I wish I could say that she has some stuff coming up, but she really unfortunately doesn't just because, of course, theater and stuff got fucked over by COVID as much as like more so than a lot of other places. Yeah. So, yeah. No, Mookie's super talented. I'll always remember coming home with my friends to Mookie wearing her full makeup, wearing a kimono, rehearsing in the living room. (laughs) (laughs) Mookie's just always had a fascination with circuses and clowning she's a great clown really funny and hopefully you all get a chance to experience it because it's great and christine cook is one of our oldest family friends and she's actually quite a well-known figure in calgary for ridiculous reasons she was a co-founder of a group known as the green fools who did a bunch of crazy Antics. They even did a bunch of ads for TELUS back in the day, <laughs> uh, like the early 2000s. One of the shows that we did, it was called The Bricks and Earth Circus, or B&E. <laughs> I was actually in that show with my brother, of course. Of course. I have pictures. I don't think I'll post them. The premise of the show is it was a circus show. It was supposed to be a circus show, but people in the cast seemed to mysteriously die. And Mookie's character was uh, Coyote. Well, her her character was named Coyote. <laughs> and uh, she falls in love with the circus ringleader and tries to like win her affections kind of deal. So it's been so long since we did it. I don't really remember much, unfortunately. But um, Christine Cook partially wrote the show. Other funny antics that she's done, one of her most, probably her most famous one, 
is when George W. Bush came to visit Calgary after his, like, I, I think it was after his presidency. As a joke, Christine made a shoe cannon <laughs> that actually would, like, it would it used a, a like a, a, an elastic system, but would actually shoot shoes. She was never actually going to use it. It was a joke. It was a it was a stunt. Like it was just a yeah. joke. But she actually did get. I don't know if she got visited or they just contacted her. But she did get contacted by like authorities, saying like, "Look, you like this is a a threat." And she's like, "Guys, it's a it's a stupid cannon. Like it can, it can barely fire the shoes anyway. I'm not actually. It's a joke. Like sometimes the authorities don't have a good sense of humor." No. So, but she Usually also, don't. yeah, she also founded the Calgary Animated Objects Society, which is one of the largest, probably the largest puppet festival in Canada. Yeah, it's interesting because she doesn't perform much anymore. She she still writes comedic acts, and she's still super fucking funny. She's one of the most talented women I've ever met, and one of the sweetest women I've ever met. So I hope I did you justice christine oh and another thing is there was a like there used to be a the alberta general hospital in the late 90s i believe it was demolished and the day after it was demolished christine as a joke sent letters to all of the newspapers in calgary claiming responsibility (laughs) even though it's a regular demolition that's the kind of humor she would do like she's an activist for a lot of different things and she incorporates her activism in her comedy. And she hosts a really funny cabaret every single year, which I was going to bring Lindsay to one a couple years ago, but I'm kind of glad I didn't just because it's just like, well, we didn't really know each other at first. And I'm like, Lindsay would like just be like, what the fuck? It'd be really weird. Like there's a lot of funny acts, but there's also a lot of like, okay, this is very weird. But anyway, also Christine Cook has been really supportive of Panastoria. She's been really, really, really helpful with us, like writing sponsorship letters or grant proposals and whatnot. But she's absolutely amazing, and I love her. And I hope you're listening, Face. Well, the last, I guess, the last thing I'm going to talk about is uh, a weird thing for me to talk about. Like, literally, my friends have gotten mad at me because I like this show because they're like, "How you of all people like this fucking show?" And I'm like, "I, I can't explain it because I'm not into." lowbrow kind of humor and this show is definitely lowbrow it is a show called kenny versus spenny Mm -hmm. and was created and hosted by kenny hotz and spencer rice both from toronto so the idea behind kenny versus spenny they would both participate in a series of ridiculous often dangerous competitions and the person who lost the competition at the end of the episode would have to perform what's called a humiliation that was chosen by the other other person It was initially conceived as a pilot for the USA Network, but the executives pulled the plug in the middle of them filming the pilot. They finished the episode, which was who could gain gain the most weight. Yeah. (laughs) So they finished the episode and it later was picked up by CBC, of all fucking places. Uh, It did not last long on CBC. It lasted one season and 26 episodes on CBC. But it was kind of CBC's fault in a way because it aired right before Peter Mansbridge's news segment. Yes. So a lot of people, like like one person said, a lot of people 
tuning in to uh, watch, like tuning in early to catch Mansbridge, would um, accidentally see whatever humiliation was going on at the time. <laughs> uh, and also, apparently, according to them, one of their racier ads accidentally aired during the toddler block. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I would say, I would not say it was their fault no. at all. After it's, like one... when, it's like when we do ads. We can't be responsible sometimes. No, no. So after <laughs> one season, CBC canceled the show, but it was picked up the following year by Showcase. And they were given much more free range to do whatever the, the fuck they wanted because it was on a later show and on a network specifically for adults. They got to do so many over-the-top competitions. So examples starting from less ridiculous to more ridiculous. Who could stand the longest? Who's the better boxer, which actually turned out to be just Kenny locking Spenny in a, in a in the, his closet for the whole weekend, or almost the whole weekend. Who can drink more beer, which is pretty fascinating because you're not actually allowed to drink real beer on television, yet somehow they got around it. The first one to be mean loses, which I have to say for both of them was very difficult. Um, who can make the better porno? Or who can wear a dead octopus on their head the longest? So yeah, it got crazy. <laughs> Kenny versus Spenny pushed so many boundaries in terms of what could air on television, and that's why I feel we should, like, we, we it needs to be mentioned here. Mm -hmm. For example, Kenny actually spiked Spenny's orange juice with LSD in the octopus episode, so Spenny was tripping on LSD for quite a bit of the episode. Oh my god! And I'm not making this up. Damn. You know what? Like they claim to this day, yes, he was actually like spiked. <laughs> Watching that episode, I totally am convinced. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Because it's hard to fake yeah. being high on LSD. For sure. Yeah. Another example is uh, in the last, the last episode of season five, they did Who Can Smoke the Most Weed? And this is like a decade before weed was legalized in Canada. But the condition was they had to do an anti-drug PSA for the network, which... Mm -hmm went about as well as you'd expect two guys stoned out of their minds yeah <laughs> so the humiliations some of the humiliations included having to clean the windows of the production office while naked uh having to eat sushi off the body off the naked body of the other host uh dressing as a town crier in the middle of downtown toronto and forced to call out i have a small penis to passers-by <laughs> Or having to take a bath to, together, which is an episode that they both lost because there was a handful of episodes that they both lost. <laughs> so, yeah, I just have to. It's weird that I like Kenny versus Spenny. It's stupid. Yeah. It's a stupid concept, but it just works. Like, I don't know, Lindsay. I don't know if you like that show, but. I wasn't really super into yeah. it, to be honest. But I, will, I didn't get into it until like a couple years ago, like long after it stopped airing. Um, they now do, they've been trying to get the show picked up again, which Kenny says in this age, uh, with like the political correctness surrounding today, Yeah, he's like, I don't think we'll ever get picked up again, no. but they still tour and do live shows of that, like showing unaired clips from the show, basically Kenny torturing Spenny the whole show. Cause that's what Kenny did. Yes. Like he says, um. He said a lot of shows 
got really bad when those creators started to hate like started hating each other but for kenny versus penny our show got better yeah because we just got meaner and meaner to each other and like really tried to outdo each other makes sense uh it does make a lot of sense it also makes sense of why they would hate each other totally i mean you kind of hear the premise of the show and you're just like wow Smenny's just completely tortured by kenny but then you watch the show and you're like you know what they're both actually quite assholes in their own way well apparently kenny's actually a lot a really nice guy when he's not in competition with people yeah and he treated and all of the crew said he treated them a lot better than smenny did so but i guess smenny has his own like smenny has mental issues and whatnot but the the fact is like he even admits that flawed people are funny and that and he's like the fact that i'm so flawed made the show funny yeah of course and if you just see them in person and whatnot you know they're not acting you yeah. know that they yeah. really hate each other 100 percent, yeah but it, but that's what makes the show great and like just some of the like it's like okay dead octopuses on your head but yeah no it's a ridiculous show also got picked up like the 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 make, makers of south park became executive producers of that fucking show which doesn't shock me these are the guys that gave us uh terrence and philip which just says canada is all fart jokes and lowbrow humor and kenny versus penny you look at it and you're like yeah kind of unfortunately <laughs> i mean as we talked about though throughout the show there's a lot of yeah really decent humor like royal canadian air farce but yeah it was a, that's a good place to i think this is a great place to end because yeah we've and gone i on do actually now. have a fun fact this time sweet Guess what? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I can get one really quick, though, but you go okay. ahead. So um, it's actually related to sports betting or, well, to betting in general. So have you ever heard of something called a chalk before? Yes. Okay. Do you know where the term comes from? No. Okay. But I know of the so, I know of a chalk. Okay. Yeah. So I can explain that. So a chalk refers to a favorite, like a betting favorite in any sort of situation. And what that name comes from is that during... Like horse racing, which is predominantly the most bet on thing, right? That's where most betting slang comes from. Mm -hmm. Is that the favorite's name would go up in a cloud of chalk while the bookie was changing the odds uh, during the race. Okay. And so yeah, the yeah. chalk was the favorite because you couldn't see the horse's name because the bookie was changing the odds as the horse. Because obviously the odds change as bets come in before the race. Yeah. So that's where the term comes from. Okay, I do have a fact. It's not. A, it's definitely not as great as as long. But uh, the coastline of Canada is longer than the coastline of the Pacific Ocean. Hmm. Isn't that fucking nuts? Cool. I know it's like it. It still blows my mind. Even though we like, there's a lot. Like Canada has a lot of islands in the north. So you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But to still be have a longer coastline than the entire Pacific Ocean. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Is nuts. But with that, with that, we're gonna end quickly. As Jonah mentioned before, we put a bonus episode on our Patreon. Uh, if you're interested in listening to that, check out our Patreon. Yeah, the premise of that show it's a it's a pilot project that I kind of have for later for paid. Like we we both have, both Lindsay and I have ideas for other series that we're gonna sell, like produce ourselves and whatnot. Probably appear on each other's show, mm -hmm. but we want to have other people like our friends and whatnot. But truth is, like. With Museum of Controversy, probably going to have Lindsay on the show quite a bit because Lindsay, like, is, like, we talk about certain topics like this all the time. And, you know, Lindsay's smart <laughs> and has her opinions. But what Museum of Controversy is in my, is, uh, 
it's a place to discuss controversial topics. So basically the episode will have a general theme. So for example, the first episode was controversial flags. So the idea was I brought examples of flags and Muki brought examples of flags. And we basically just commented, like I gave a brief history of why this is, why it was controversial and how do we feel about it being controversial? Like we didn't have to agree that like we don't have to agree that it's controversial because there's a lot of things that are con- quote unquote controversial 100%. that's like bullshit. Yeah. Um, so like, why is it controversial to society? Do we think it's controversial? Like for example, like most of the flags we brought, we agreed on, especially like the Nazi flag. Yeah, very yeah. controversial and should be burned. <laughs> yeah. So stuff like that's the idea of Museum of Controversy. If you're interested in it, it's available for Patreons $5 and up. Um, so go check it out. And patrons who do listen, give us feedback. Please give us feedback. We want to know what kind of content you guys like. Um, we're doing our best to try and follow through on, on things. Um, but yeah, we like to know what you guys like so that, you know, we can try and make sure that we follow through on those incentives. So, and we want to do more bonus episodes and things. So yeah, check that out. We've actually found some ways for some sponsorship here. So stay tuned for that. We found some partners here to work with. Um, so hopefully that works out, but stay tuned for that, that yeah and let us know like if you have any other we think we should work with yeah we had a really great answer from somebody yeah. with a great suggestion so we're yeah. kind of working on getting there i'm not going to reveal who it is because no. that might not be that's probably not a good idea uh, not important. but yeah who who like what sort of products or programs are you interested in so it can be like yeah. web we, programs we need your help unfortunately we would like to keep this program free but it's difficult to do so <laughs> we also kind of want to make this our full-time job as well yeah so. we would eventually like to do more with this so yeah uh, money is required unfortunately um and as much as i hate asking for it here we are so if uh, anyone is able to yeah help us out check uh, check our patreon out or give us some feedback on products and programs you'd be interested in uh, checking out and in the meantime please follow us on social media facebook instagram uh we're working on a newsletter so stay tuned stay tuned for that because that'll yeah. be really good yeah that'll be great and you can sign up for the newsletter i believe so you just get an email yep it'll be in your inbox um, every monday and if you're a patreon if you're a patron you might get some special stuff in the newsletter yeah, we'll if you don't know um also uh kevin should we announce what kevin's doing for the newsletter or no? there will be a special message from kevin in every newsletter yeah so you don't want to miss that yeah um and i think with that we're done we're done um so. so thank you guys so much we're sorry one quick thing we're sorry we're kind of like things have been kind of drawn mm-hmm. out We've been we have been working on podcast stuff, just not episodes. We yeah, promise. We're, we're trying to lay some foundations to, to to grow the podcast. We want to eventually yeah. keep growing, and and also there's been some personal tragedy, as Jonah mentioned, two people, and I also lost someone recently. Um, so it's just, it's been tough lately. So we appreciate your patience, but uh, we're we're still we're still around. Yeah, I mean, 2020 sucks. Yeah, and uh, please enjoy this uh, closing. <laughs> Scene from the Royal Canadian Air Force and uh, Don Ferguson playing the wonderful Preston Manning. And uh, have a great week, everyone. Thank you guys so much. Uh, be good to each other. Kevin says rar. Just take me forward from Yeah.